thing about the A1 thing is that it gives them a finished product. They don't have to make it. They don't have to imagine it. It gets delivered. And, uh, and it gives them all the training that they need. Interest-free financing. It's like a total package. And so people are really offended by the idea of it. Uh, but in fact, it does for them exactly what they otherwise have a great deal of trouble doing for themselves. And then they can go and they can learn to do something else with it, with the skills. They were very, very, very happy with it. Very happy with it. Okay, yeah. All right, you're going to turn me on? Hello and welcome and thanks so much for coming. Um, I'm Linda Scott. I'm the Chair for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Business School. And if that surprises you that someone with that kind of a title would be here tonight, I want to say, I want to emphasize that one of the things we've all noticed tonight is how, how diverse our backgrounds are. And yet, nevertheless, we think there are some interesting and in some cases surprising overlaps. And we hope you will uh, find it the same. Um, we're going to have, um, first, first of all, we're going to have a talk from Francis Richardson about women farmers in Snowdonia uh, in the, what was it, 15th, 16th, 17th century? 18th. 18th century. Yes, a very, very interesting thing, but seems like seems like actually far removed for, from perhaps some of the stuff that I'm doing, which is economic development in Africa and South Asia. But in fact, we've just had a very interesting conversation about some of the commonalities between these two situations. Um, after Francis is done, we're going to have a few minutes for, um, for question and answer, but only a few minutes. We're going to try to save as much time as we can to have a, a, a free discussion uh, at the end. Um, after that, then we're going to um, hear from Naz Ganea, who is going to talk about the whole issue of women as human rights and how uh, it, women in the human rights context and how gender identity overlaps with other kinds of identities. And in particular, she's going to talk about religious identity, which um, I, can, I can say again, there's an interesting overlap with some of, some of my work because, and you wouldn't think it, but a lot of uh, what happens with religious identity is that it is used to guide economic behavior as well. Um, and so these things do end up kind of having a little bit of an interesting impetus to them. All right. And then um, we will actually have another five minutes where you'll be able to ask Nas particular questions about her work. But then we'll move on to Alistair Ross, who also has a really interesting, but again, seemingly far, far removed uh, topic that isn't all that far removed. And it's about spirituality and uh, how it occurs in therapy. Um, and he will talk about kind of a surprise finding that he had while, while working on another research question about gender and spirituality. And again, as you can see, that will then kind of overlap with the identity issues that NAS is raising as well. Uh, anyway, um, so we'll have another five minutes of, of, of uh, question and answer um, specifically for Alistair, and then I'll stand back up and we'll all come here and, and, and try to have a, an open discussion for about 20, 25 minutes. So uh, I did want to say I'm going to take one opportunity to plug my own stuff here. Um, I, I was told that there would be um, perhaps some doctoral students um, here that they often register for these seminars. And I'm offering a doctoral seminar uh, in uh, Hillary term uh, uh, on women's, women in economics. 
uh, over at the business school and there is a little blurb about it by the door back there so you can feel free to take a sheet with you and read it at your leisure and perhaps we'll see you over there. Okay, so I'm going to um, concede the floor to uh, Francis now. community to the impact of a pay review in the UK. So in my local history D. Phil research on rural change in Snowdonia from 1750 to 1900, it seemed natural to ensure that gender formed an integral part of the analysis. One aspect of this society proved to be the relatively high proportion of women farmers. This was an unexpected finding, as no previous studies of 18th and 19th century Welsh agrarian history had even mentioned them. The decline in women's employment as farm servants and farm labourers in England during this period has been well researched, but the prevailing discourse about women farmers could be summed up by Leonor Davidoff's depiction of separate spheres. This was the trend initiated by middle-class entrepreneurial families to define a woman's place as being in the home, with an increased emphasis on the role of the male breadwinner who engaged with the outside public world. In earlier periods, women typically became farmers by taking over on the death of their husband. But Davidoff found that with the growth of capitalist agriculture after around 1780, it became increasingly difficult for widows to take over farm management. Landowners often regarded them as incompetent and were reluctant to grant them a tenancy. Women had difficulty in gaining access to capital and in marketing their goods. And where widows did take on farm management, this was often as a short-term holding operation until a son was old enough to take over. My study area uh, was the hundred of Nant Conwy, which comprised seven parishes in southeast Carnarvonshire in North Wales. This was a sparsely populated area of scattered farms where cattle rearing was the mainstay of the economy. Sheep farming and slate quarrying grew in importance through the 19th century. Uh, to see how and why women became farmers, in Nant Conwy and the role they played in the local society, I analysed four key aspects. Access to land, how they acquired capital, whether they had sufficient knowledge of farming and their motivation to continuing farming. By farmer, by the way, I mean the official tenant of farms over eight acres, which of course downplays the role of women um, who also ran small farms while their husbands were employed elsewhere or working alongside their husband on a larger family farm. During this period, women farmers remained more common throughout Wales than in England. Occupational data from the 1851 census shows that 15% of Welsh farmers were women compared to 9% in England and Wales as a whole. Carnarvonshire 
with 20% women farmers, had one of the highest percentages in Wales. Uh, interestingly, by 1901, both the absolute number and the percentage of women farmers had increased in Wales, as more men than women left farming as their main occupation. In 1901, uh, the proportion of women farmers in Carnarvonshire was more than twice the national average, although my study area of Nant Conwy, the, uh, the final purple column, seems to have gone against the general trend. For the period before census data is available, um, data on women farmers was obtained from land tax returns, estate rentals and surveys, and tithe commutation records of around 1840. Different sources produced significantly different results for reasons I haven't got time to go into now. But overall, I would conclude that the proportion of women farmers was between 14 and 22%. The tithe records also showed that for farms over eight acres, the average size of farms held by women was virtually identical to those held by men. Women constituted 16.1% of the farmers and they held 16.6% of the land. So turning to how women became farmers, their first requirement was access to land. And since 90% of the land in Nant Conwy was owned by a small number of major landowners, this usually meant obtaining a farm tenancy. Although annual tenancies at will were the norm in Snowdonia by this period, and women had no legal right to their deceased husband's tenancy, landowners and their agents appear to have been happy to continue a long-standing tradition of giving the widow the first option of taking over the farm. Uh, in the evidence to the Royal Commission on Land in 1896, the agent of the largest estate in Wales said, I cannot recall any case where the widow was not allowed to succeed her dead husband as tenant if she so wished, or failing her, the son or other near relative. So having obtained some land, <coughs> women farmers also needed capital, which was mainly in the form of, of animals. To identify the extent to which women inherited farm stock, I analysed 98 male farmers' wills and 57 probate administration bonds with their inventories for three Nant Conwy parishes during the period 1750 to 1858. The results showed very clearly that most male farmers who made a will wanted to give their wife the option to continue farming. Where there was a surviving wife, she was bequeathed the residue of her, farm, uh, her, her husband's personal estate in 48% of cases. This was after minor bequests had been made to other family members. And in a further 45% of cases, the widow shared the residue with one or more sons and daughters. In only 7% of cases did the husband leave his wife a purely monetary bequest and leave the farm animals to other relatives. And moreover, where there was no surviving wife, farmers typically left their stock between sons and daughters. So overall, women were twice as likely as men to inherit farm stock. Um, a very typical inheritance was Gwen Jones of Tithin D in 1793. Her husband left a personal estate valued at £113 
of which Gwen was to pay bequests of £20 to their son, John Edwards, and £25 to their daughter, Catherine. Most of the value of the estate was in animals worth £98, as well as some basic implements of husbandry. Um, Gwen had a spinning wheel and a cheese sieve, which shows how she would have contributed to the farm economy. She continued to run the farm for at least six years after her husband's death. So what about women's farming know-how? In England during the later 18th century, increasing specialisation, the decline in farm service where workers uh, ceased to live with the farmer's family, the mechanisation of spinning and cloth production all led to a reduced role for farmers' wives. Many began to aspire to a more genteel lifestyle and no longer exercised control over or took any interest in the business management of the farm. But in Wales, farmers' wives remained very much involved in running the family farm throughout the 19th century and would have generally possessed sufficient know-how to continue the farm after their husband's death. Although John Evans, in his 1798 tour through Wales, described Nant Conwy farmers as dairy men, the dairying side of the farm, processing wool and much of the marketing was in fact the usual preserve of women folk. Until well into the 19th century, cattle were generally sold off the farms to drovers who took them to, uh, to London markets or the Midlands and paid for them on their return. So women farmers would not have encountered much difficulty in taking on the marketing of their store cattle. A further question is the extent to which f women tenants were actually in charge of their farm. A well-known study of farm organisation in southwest Wales at the turn of the 20th century describes a very pronounced di gender division of labour, with men responsible for the cultivation of crops, looking after horses and cattle, and women the dairying, tending farmyard animals, making hay, binding corn, loading dung carts and lifting potatoes. This is a fairly uh, traditional gender division of labour, the rationale for which is not at all <coughs> clear to me. You could hardly call things like loading dung carts and lifting potatoes light work. In South West Wales, every farm needed a master and a mistress. If the farmer had no wife, a sister, daughter or housekeeper would undertake the woman's work. A woman farmer needed a son or a chief male farm labourer to undertake the, the master role. But in Snowdonia, where crops played a relatively minor role on the farm, there does not appear to have been such a, a pronounced division of labour, especially on small farms where much of the work was undertaken by family members and occasionally by single women. Carnarvonshire women were also involved in sheep shearing, uh, shepherding and collecting peat. And there's lots of evidence from... Uh, uh, family correspondence, estate records, showing that women farmers were actively involved in managing their farms. A couple of examples. Um, after the Napoleonic Wars, the Gwydr estate tried unsuccessfully to forbid the old practice of paring and burning peat to clear old pastures for crops. Amongst the culprits named were Margaret Evans for burning heather, Margaret Jones Coitmore for ploughing pasture, and Margaret Cadwallader Bryn Mulloch for ploughing pasture. Uh, a lot of uh, Margarets in the area. And in the late 19th century, um, 
Catherine Roberts, who took over the 2,000-acre farm of Dufferin Mumbia after her husband's death, employed a governess to look after her eight children while she ran the farm. Her last remaining son at home wrote to a brother asking if he knew of a farm going vacant because he really wanted a farm of his own, so hardly somebody who was running the farm on his mother's behalf. Um, the final factor was women's desire to continue farming. I investigated how many of the widows who inherited farm stock actually did continue farming and tried to trace their careers um, to see what happened next. It was possible to trace 53% of the widows from the earlier sample and of those who were traced, 71% were found to have continued farming, in some cases for up to 30 years after their husband's death. A few, but not many, might pass the management of the farm to a son and continue to live on the farm. Those with sufficient capital might sell up and move to the market town or stay in their village lending money as a source of income, but not very many of them had enough money to do that. In some cases, Widows continued to farm for a number of years, but retired as they grew too old to farm in the rather harsh mountain environment, especially if they had no children to help. One such was Mary Thomas of Hledwigan, who in 1841 asked the uh, agent of the Gwydder estate to give up her tenancy as soon as a new tenant could be found who was prepared to buy her stock as a going concern. A major influence in women's choice to remain as farmers must have been the lack of other opportunities. There was little employment for women. In the 1851 census, we still find some widows and spinsters earning their living by hand-knitting stockings. Many women, therefore, continued at least nominally in charge of the farm until they died. Nevertheless, the picture that frequently emerges of strong matriarchs also suggests that remaining active may have been a positive choice for many. So in conclusion, I hope that this brief case study of Snowdonia women farmers has illustrated the benefits of undertaking a gender analysis in a rural history context. We've seen how a number of factors enabled women to farm often quite large farms in Wales against the general trend in England for women to withdraw from the sphere of capitalist farming. Those factors were virtually hereditary tenancies, the inheritance of farm stock with the support of their male relatives, the persistence of traditional farming methods, their previous farming experience as farmers' daughters and wives, usually both, and finally, a uh, few other options to support themselves and their families, but also, probably, once they had got their hand on the tiller, the desire to keep it there. Thank you. to study life expectancy for the population as a whole here. There were an awful lot of common names uh, in, in this particular area. Um, but uh, there certainly were quite, it wasn't unusual for people to live into their 80s. Uh, it, was, it was, although it was a very harsh lifestyle, 
um, it was it was quite healthy. They had a healthy diet of a lot of oats and milk and cheese, uh, which may not sound very healthy by today's standards, but uh, and, and of course clean water. So compared to people living in the cities, uh, they had quite a long. Once they'd made it past you know, early years and then sort of the dangerous period as teenagers uh, and young adults, where there was a lot of consumption around that they had quite a good chance of. Uh, the men tended to die younger, uh, particularly if they got involved uh, with drink at all. Women were much less likely to drink. I think that um, during this period, women were um, not necessarily younger than their husbands. In fact, uh, I was quite surprised to find that they were not infrequently older than their husbands. And I think that you know, people would have married for economic convenience. If, if there was a woman who had inherited a, a fair amount of farm stock from her, her, husband, uh, her father, um, she would be you know, an attractive person to marry even if she was sort of five years older than you. Um, so there wasn't that sort of inherent age difference. But nevertheless, yes, I think sort of more wives outlived their husbands and vice versa. Although there were something like 25% of, of husbands whose wives had died before them. So I think one of the reasons for the high proportion of women, and this is even high by historical standards compared to English rural communities, is the fact that um, they, they did keep going until you know, they, they died quite often, whereas in England, in earlier periods, um, women more typically waited until a son was old enough to take over and then stepped aside. But, but in Snowdonia, they tended to stay there and sons came and went, and quite often it might be a grandson who eventually took over. Yes. You mentioned that some women sold up and then made a, a living from lending mm. the, the money. Is there any evidence that they were a good source of funds for women who needed to get stock? Um, I think most of the lending would have been to men. Um, women were possibly a bit more cautious that they would build up the stock from what they had inherited. Um, the, the sort of people who borrowed um, might well be young men trying to get started on a new farm, having not inherited very much, or gentry borrowed from farm, minor gentry borrowed from farmers, uh, drovers quite often borrowed money, and uh, you might well not see it again <laughs> afterwards. It, it, that's quite difficult, Audrey, because um, by the time you get some data about them, it's usually after they're dead, and if they were quite old, they might well have been um, not carrying as many stock as, as they would have done previously. I think like the studies that have been done in earlier periods in England, 
you don't get the sense that most of them were extremely entrepreneurial, that they were probably um, farming what they had inherited, uh, but not necessarily adding to it. And of course, they, they like elderly male farmers, um, once they got older, would be perhaps uh, distributing um, some of their stock around family members to help them get started as well. But uh, if, if you do see you know, a wife who dies not all that long, just a few years after her husband, you would typically see you know, probably similar goods that she's leaving to the rest of the family um, than, than the husband. Was it possible to measure any level of literacy in these women? And whether they, they, in fact, had any kind of innovatory patterns at all to how they farm? Yeah. Was that difficult of any personal matters? Um, most of them would have been um, illiterate until um, probably about the middle of the 19th century. That this was a, an area, it's a relatively uh, un underdeveloped mountain farming area. Um, free schooling didn't come until the early 19th century. A uh, lot of children would have been out at work on the farms. Um, not an awful lot of them would have gone to school. Uh, some of the bigger farms might, have, farms might have sent their children to private schools, perhaps on the north coast of Wales. Certainly from, from looking at um, marriage records, um, people's um, wills and so on. You know, an awful lot of people are signing by the mark. Now, that, the fact that you can't write doesn't necessarily mean that you can't read. A lot more people could read. But of course, remember as well that they would have been Welsh speaking in this area and that there was very little agricultural literature in Welsh until towards the end of the 19th century. So actually, I mean, most of the male farmers weren't very innovative um, either. So that, that was one of the reasons why it was easier for women, because it remained a fairly traditional uh, way, way where you learnt from the people around you rather than from, from reading literature. Um, before we begin, if I can just ask one last question. Um, before we begin, um, you made a comment um, as we were talking about kind of the three presentations about how you had looked into what, um, what this had meant for their participation, particularly in religious life, but um, I'm also wondering about community life generally. Could you say anything at all about uh, how the farm ownership might have affected their engagement with the, you know, the immediate community? Yes, you, you, you might have thought that if, uh, if, if women were occupying you know, up to 20% of the key economic roles, because this was largely a farming community through most of this period, that that, that might have spilled over into uh, a, a wider role in the community, uh, but it didn't. Uh, the, I think that the normal gender stereotypes very much came in there. In the earlier period, you find uh, occasionally women acting as church wardens. This was when local government was very much done through the parish, and, and being a church warden uh, was, was a key uh, position in the local civil society. Uh, but at this period, um, you, you don't. And certainly, um, the religion was mainly Methodism. Um, the male farmers that of the large farms would be sitting in the big seat in the Methodist chapel as deacons. Uh, you would never, ever have seen a woman appointed as a deacon in the chapel. The most they could aspire to would be perhaps being a Sunday school teacher. Um, and I guess, actually, that these women were pretty busy 
if they were both running the farm and running the house and uh, didn't really have much time and probably much desire to engage in the outside world. One interesting aspect was that uh, the Gwydir estate, one of the largest estates in the area, reinstituted uh, a manor court, which was a rather medieval institution in the 19th century, and called all of the farmers from uh, about six parishes together once a year for regulation of the agricultural affairs of the area. And they didn't invite women for about the first 20 years of, of running it, even though women were running some of the largest farms. And by the time they did invite women, actually none of them turned up. They might send a son instead. But you couldn't help feeling that they were probably busy cooking the dinner and didn't want to travel 15 miles to, to the village where the, the court was being held. Um, and I'd like to invite Nazganea up as the next speaker. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I was invited to do this talk about 15 months ago, <laughs> maybe even 16 months ago. So I thought I was being very clever and I said, no, the second is not a Friday. And they said, no, no, 2012. So it's, uh, it's been a long time coming, but it's great to be here. I was asked to address something to do with uh, gender and human rights. And I'm going to look at gender as one of the identity claims that are uh, considered within international human rights law. And um, in many ways, gender is like the prototype identity claim in international human rights law. It's been something of a pioneer in international human rights law. So when we look at questions of equality and discrimination, um, the fight has been fought by gender activists. And they have really shown the way in terms of delivering on international human rights standards and you know, making sure that these rights that have been claimed and you know, achieved after uh, much difficulty and much challenge actually filter down and are experienced and enjoyed at the grassroots. Um, and I've come to this issue um, through looking at different kinds of identity claims in international human rights law, uh, race, religion or belief, minority status, and gender. And the, I want to ask the somewhat provocative question here tonight, considering the theme is gender, of can we overstate gender as an identity claim in international human rights law? Um, and this isn't to take away anything from the fact that gender is an inspiration in terms of identity claims in international human rights law. And, um, you know, both at the national level and international level, it's charted the way where other identity claims can, you know, only aspire to at the moment. Um, so let's look more concretely at the question of religious women. Um, and do we really consider religious women as really being women? It raises a, a, an interesting question that in gender rights, we often talk about um, revealing the private space and making sure that discrimination that is suffered um, in what was previously considered the private sphere now be dealt with as a matter of you know, public concern and legal concern. But when it comes to religious women, we have the interesting 
challenge and contradiction that often we want religious women to be more private about their religion so that we can embrace them and consider them um, in, in a more typical way uh, in, in terms of gender claims. Um, religious women, I, I want to say that in, in the media, in public policy, in the legal sphere are often silenced. They're rarely given platform and agency and voice um, as religious women. They are othered or they're distanced. We often see them in the media as hijabi women, as Afghan women, as submissive women, as Saudi women fighting to, to be able to drive. They are pitied and they are to be rescued. And often what we want to do is to rescue them from their religion so that they too can, be, can enjoy gender rights. So we often put religious women as a category uh, and, and you know, in one category, in one box as a homogenous whole. And they challenge us because they're not private um, about their religion. Um, and so you know, if, we if only we rescue them from their religion, they too can enjoy gender rights. So when we focus um, in terms of international human rights law standards, we often find that religious women are also dissected. So if you look at what human rights standards we have to protect religious women, well, we either have protections for women and, you know, and equality and non-discrimination, or we have protections for religion. We don't have one international treaty or one international mechanism that can bring together their religious identity and their gender identity. Of course, we can say that this is also true of other categories of women. Women, you know, they are women and they are minorities. They are women and they are indigenous. Or they are women and they are children. So, you know, that dissection or separation does take place in terms of other women as well. But I think it's, it's particularly sharp in terms of religious women. Now, um, in terms of um, religious women, we, the, the challenge that is often perceived is precisely that when women suffer um, or suffer discrimination on grounds, uh, um, suffer um, religious discrimination, they suffer discrimination within their religion because they are women, we often want to highlight that. We are very vigilant about um, the private sphere in terms of violence against women, we are concerned about discrimination against women within religious communities. We are concerned about inequality um, in, in cultural terms for women. Now, um, the role of religion in discriminating against women is something that is, uh, has been well considered. Um, Reed has said, no social group has suffered greater violation of human rights in the name of culture than women. Um, a former special rapporteur on freedom of religion or belief, Abdul Fattah Amor, said that many forms of discrimination against women are based on or attributed to religion, tolerated by the state, and in some cases enshrined in legislation. Okay? So the discrimination is in the name at least, or due to religion. It is then um, tolerated by the state and then it becomes enshrined in law. That's, although he was a special rapporteur on religion or belief, he saw this, this trajectory and grounds for um, much discrimination and harmful 
um, practices against women. And he gave examples of female genital mutilation, polygamy, discrimination related to inheritance, sacred prostitution, general preference to have boys, etc., etc. There is no shortage of um, discriminatory acts that um, stem from discrimination because of or inspired by religion. The state tolerates it, then it becomes enshrined in law and it's uh, normalized. Um, Asma Jahangir, the subsequent special rapporteur, UN special rapporteur on freedom of religion or belief, also referred to discriminatory and harmful practices against women, including honor killings, polygamy, marriage of, un of underage girls, and prohibition or coercion to wear religious symbols, uh, personal laws such as divorce, inheritance, custody, and transmission of citizenship. So all of these are, um, we can see are how women suffer in the name of religion or due to religion. Um, nevertheless, uh, and this is, you know, we can't turn a blind eye to that. These are really important battles and really important discriminatory practices that need to be countered in human rights terms. And I think human rights has not shied away from these challenges. Um, then we have a whole body of uh, cases and examples in relation to the headscarf. And um, there's a, a case that the UN Human Rights Committee dealt with where uh, a student who was wearing the headscarf um, in Uzbekistan was uh, thrown out of the university and accused of being the cause, because of wearing a headscarf, of getting the whole Persian Studies Department closed down at that university, the closure of the student residences, and all of this was blamed on her and this apparently provocative act of her wanting to wear the headscarf when going to university. We also have a lot of European um, jurisprudence. The European Court of Human Rights has had a number of cases in relation to, let's say, the, the, the religious woman, the observant woman who wants to carry through a religious practice. And again, the Shaheen versus Turkey case is the example of a medical student who has to discontinue her studies in Turkey because she insists on wearing the headscarf. And the irony of that case is that she goes to Germany to complete her studies <laughs> where it's, it wasn't prohibited, it isn't prohibited to wear the headscarf. So the headscarfed woman um, we often consider as a subjugated woman, a submissive woman, but we see in these two examples cases of a religious woman who um, is, is challenged because of her practice and we see in the Shaheen case that she uh, fights through uh, and she insists on um, achieving her objective which is to finish uh, medical studies. So she's not submissive, she challenges the state, she takes a case to the European Court of Human Rights and even though her case fails she goes through and achieves her objective of completing medical studies. Um, I want to draw from this in the few minutes we have remaining to say that we shouldn't categorize women and we shouldn't um, presume that women need to choose in situations like this between either being a woman or being religious. We need to allow for self-definition and a holistic enjoyment of human rights on the grounds of multiple identities, religion 
and gender are just two of these identities, but of course, you know, on grounds of race, on grounds of minority status, on grounds of indigenous status, and we shouldn't presume that women should be rescued from their religion or rescued from their culture and that the paramount identity to be protected in all scenarios and in all contexts is that of gender above any other identity claim. Just like men enjoy multiple identities, uh, we should allow for women too to be able to claim their, their identity and their rights in, in how they see them. I think human rights agencies and NGOs have sort of been cornered because of, you know, we are sort of overwhelmed by the fact that, you know, polygamy, inheritance, the role of women um, in perpetuating culture and leadership roles within religion, um, custody, all of these uh, challenges around the world have forced us into thinking that, you know, um, religion is a problem for women and uh, what we need to champion is the gender rights of women globally. And I think that has made us sideline the fact that uh, women, too, should enjoy other identities and have an equal claim on the freedom of religion or belief. For example, we find that international NGOs often take a secular framework and strategy in order to champion women's rights. Um, and uh, this doesn't always allow women, either individually or within their communities, to negotiate their position in a way that can uphold both their gender rights and their cultural, religious, uh, and other identity claims. Now, I know this skirts around many difficult questions of what about um, particular scenarios? How do we really know that a woman claimant um, has arrived at her position freely? Okay, Is that even possible that you can uh, arrive at your position free from any kind of cultural pressure or family pressure or constraint. Um, what about the girl child? Do we champion gender rights beyond all other identity claims when we are concerned with an, uh, you know, an underage girl? Or do we allow her to self-define her freedom of religion or belief as well? And what about harmful cultural practices and religious practices? But my emphasis on religious women isn't to say that uh, religion should be some kind of trump card or that we should ignore all these uh, practices of discrimination uh, and all these violations. It is just to say that we should go beyond the religion-gender ge uh, religion binary. Um, I think uh, by emphasizing gender rights and downplaying the role of uh, claims uh, of religious women for religion or belief. We also under, are at risk of um, underemphasizing one other thing, and that is that women are not just the victims of practices that are based on their culture or their religion or belief. A lot of discrimination is also carried out by states themselves. If we turn to um, the Pew Research Forum report from August 2011, Rising Restrictions on Religion, we note that their report says that restrictions on religious beliefs and practices rose between mid-2006 and mid-2009 in 23 of the world's 198 countries. It decreased in 12 countries and it remained essentially unchanged in 163 countries. So over the, those three years, the situation 
in terms of religious belief or practice had deteriorated in 12% of the countries, um, but had remained unch unchanged in 82%, okay? The Pew Research also suggests that more than 2.2 billion people, nearly a third of the world's population, live in countries where either government restrictions on religion or social hostilities involving religion rose substantially over the three-year period. So much of uh, the inequality and discrimination that both men and women suffer from does stem from the state itself. So, you know, painting this picture of women only being a victim of their culture um, ignores the role of the state. Women are not only discriminated within their religion on gender grounds, they are also discriminated purely on grounds of their religion or belief by state actors. Now, all of this talk has been about discrimination against women within religion. What it totally ignores, and much of the human rights literature um, ignores, is the fact that religious women are also empowered through their religion. They are liberated, or they feel liberated, um, on grounds that they are both women and religious. They draw inspiration from their religion or belief. They draw strength, direction um, from their religion or belief. And they, what the life they want to lead is one that is grounded in both their gender identity and their religion or belief identity. For them, the two are seamless and united. So, in sum, I think that uh, the international human rights uh, literature uh, and the human rights literature in general has been pushed over recent decades to put more and more emphasis on the private sphere. This has meant that they have become more and more vigilant and concerned about what is also happening within the realm of religion and the discrimination, the discriminatory practices that stem from that realm um, and, and that women suffer from. This is very important, that needs to be countered and that needs to continue. But I think that has cornered us into um, seeing women as uh, only uh, needing to be saved and protected from their religion. And it is important just as men enjoy uh, and should enjoy uh, their multiple identity claims, we shouldn't force uh, the religious woman uh, as a contradiction in terms and only tolerate the religious woman uh, when that religion is privatized and not public. Thank you. Some questions for Naz? I don't see the same uh, tension, uh, the, the, there isn't the same perceived tension regarding a man who holds a religion or belief. We, we have little public debate or public policy concern about men needing to be protected from their culture or from their religion or belief. Um, and that's why, I mean, I, I don't want to claim that all men enjoy all human rights. <laughs> of course, that's completely ludicrous. But I'm saying that, you know, um, 
the, the, the fight for gender rights has been such a compelling and important one in recent decades that we have you know, come to this conclusion that gender is the paramount identity. And when we see a, a case or a scenario where um, a woman um, yeah, in a religious context is claiming her rights, we want, to, we want to emphasize her gender rights above and beyond her, her other identities. And, you know, I'm not saying that we should emphasize her religious identity if she herself is not claiming them, but where she is, we should allow for her to claim the identities that are important to her and to try and balance them um, as best we can rather than, you know, jump in, rescue and make presumptions about uh, the religious element being insignificant or less significant. Yes. Of course it is. You, you have a very packed comment and, and question there. Um, of course, you know, the, the compass of an international human rights organization will be human rights standards. So I'm not suggesting that they become theological experts and, and, and try to sort of parachute in and change a religion from within because that's not their role. Nevertheless, uh, freedom of religion or belief is part of uh, their compass and their guide and I think even freedom of religion or belief as captured in international human rights law is often sidelined and the gender identity of the claimant is emphasized. I'm only saying that they should also be cognizant of freedom of religion or belief insofar as the claimant is claiming it uh, rather than any, anything else. So of course human rights will be their guide but there is a provision there for you know, claimants who, who want to hold and want to manifest religion or belief. Um, a number of years ago, about four years ago, um, Human Rights Watch was on a, a tour in the UK and they were explaining the first case where they uh, were involved in litigation and for the first time had engaged religious law. And it was um, the identity card cases in Egypt 
where uh, a number of Baha'is and Christians had challenged the new identity card law in Egypt that said that to claim an identity card in Egypt some years back, uh, which you need in order to get a bank loan, to get a job, to get payment into your bank account, to get vaccinations, to register at school, to get a driving license, that you, you, you need to survive for daily survival in Egypt. Uh, a new law was brought uh, about in Egypt about 2006 saying uh, when you claimed your identity card, you need to, to declare yourself either as Christian, Muslim or Jewish. Um, and therefore those who had changed their religion uh, or those who had other religions or beliefs were not able to claim their identity cards and there were a number of challenges that have been largely successful and Human Rights Watch had joined a litigation uh, case in Egypt and they said that it was with much soul searching and reluctance that they made reference in uh, the litigation to Islamic law and the only reason they did so was they were partnering with an Egyptian uh, non-governmental organization who persuaded and they were persuaded that because the original case referred to Islamic law you would be neglecting half of the argumentation if you didn't respond using Islamic law but they were very reticent because they didn't feel that they had expertise in Islamic law and it was only um, because it was in the original case that they were trying to overturn that they referred to it but you know it was successful and although it's not easy for an international NGO that doesn't have expertise um, in religious law in this case it was part of the argumentation and it was part of the success of, of that legal challenge. We move on to Alistair's um, talk now. This is a very interesting conversation. We'd like to see it continue, but I also suspect some of what he says may shed some additional perspective on it. So. I hope so. I, I think so. Um, well, I've been listening uh, with uh, great delight at the breadth and depth of my uh, colleagues, and uh, what I'm about to present to you is uh, somewhat more speculative and is, is an illustration of what happens when you're researching one thing and you discover another, and what do you then do with that? Um, because uh, my original, this original piece of research was on the spiritual phenomena that are experienced in counselling and therapy sessions. And so I'm going to say just a very uh, little bit about that to set the context out of which uh, the issue of gender um, arose. Um, I uh, interviewed, um, I, I did questionnaires of which there were um, 104 and uh, there were some general data. Uh, one was the age profile. This would be a fairly reasonable age profile for counsellors and therapists. The other was, um, factor was the gender balance which um, there were 104 questionnaires returned, of which um, uh, eight were returned by men. Now the thing is, is, is I always knew that the counselling and psychotherapy profession has more women than men in it, um, um, unless of course it's in administration or teaching, in which case um, there's the usual uh, issue that there's often um, as many women as men. And I think that that really, when you saw this, as a, for the f not for the first time, but when you actually saw that, it, it had some implications that I, I, I will 
say a little bit more about today. Uh, in terms of theoretical orientation of the people that completed the questionnaire, they were um, a, broad, uh, a broad range across all sorts of different therapeutic traditions. So it wasn't just one particular group that may be unrepresentative. And in terms of the area of practice, um, it ranged from trainees, private practice, the NHS, voluntary, some in higher education, further education. So quite a large number of these were, uh, were trainees. And so, again, this is a, uh, it, it re represents the people that returned uh, the data. But it, it's, there's no dominance of any one particular um, group. And uh, one of the uh, questions that they answered was they, they were offered uh, a number of different descriptive, six different descriptive definitions of spirituality. And one of the very interesting uh, results from the original research was that given that the, the 104 questionnaires went to people in training contexts, in four different university contexts, in uh, a couple of conferences, in which there was no explicit religious or spiritual agenda, these were training contexts, was the fact that uh, such a large proportion identified a spirituality in their work of recognizing a divine being as being particularly significant for them. For others it was a unique potential, for others it was an, an experiential, for some it was abstract. Uh, there was a category for you know, no, no God, faith, whatever at all, where in fact the spirituality was entirely located within the self um, and with no reference beyond that. And I think I was quite surprised by these particular um, findings. I'll, I'll get back a bit um, before I come on to that. But the, but the what that made me think, is this research that I've done um, an account of spirituality expressed by generic counselors and therapists? Or in fact, is it an account of female counselors and therapists' spirituality? Is there such a thing as women's spirituality as opposed to male spirituality? Because if I take this data very seriously, I can only really claim with confidence on the basis of the results that I've received that the information I have is um, a comprehensive understanding of female spirituality because 92% of the people responding were women. And that's a huge bias in any uh, piece of research. And so I've got to start thinking about that. That, that was the starting point for me that took me in a direction that I hadn't thought about um, at all. I think I just made some assumptions that spirituality was just spirituality um, experienced by men and women. But my research, I think, has suggested that it's a good account of spirituality expressed by women. And so that's the debate I want to, the step forward I want to take with you, to think a little bit about is there such a thing as female spirituality as opposed to male spirituality? The clearest research that's been done uh, that really relates to this is in the area of faith development, uh, uh, which was developed by James Fowler and his colleagues in the 1970s. That was at a time when sort of linear and uh, linear views of psychological development and child development were, were very much in vogue. And Fowler advocated a generic view of faith as uh, an orientation of ultimate concerns and existence including but not requiring the possibility of God. Filer wrote in 1990, faith development research does not presume all faith is religious faith. 
It seeks to interpret the patterns and content of meaning-making in pe the lives of people who have no significant connection with religious communities or traditions. So Fowler identified uh, seven structural developmental stages of faith, and Fowler's work became very influential in pastoral and particularly in educational settings, especially in the USA. Now, very interestingly, Fowler's original work in the 70s has been replicated in, in not just American or North American context, but in many other contexts um, as well. And as time has gone by, um, the, the, some of his ideas have, have, stood, uh, have stood the test of time, or they will see in one area where they haven't. But um, just a literally a very quick overview of what Fowler was saying. He said that there are seven stages people go through. Um, the left-hand column is this, what he called stage um, uh, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Uh, the center is the age at which this generally occurs in uh, child and psychological development. And the third were the terms he gave for each of these stages. So for instance, stage 0 up to the age of 3, the foundation for faith is in the emergence of basic trust versus mistrust. And um, although I've used the word God here, that was simply to, to um, I didn't, there's about a page of descriptions for each of these. And so I'm using God in a very generic sense. But in terms of if a child were to describe God, whether they, they believed in that God or not, um, you know, God is a powerful creature of the imagination, not unlike Superman or Santa Claus. So I remember um, in my role as a minister of religion uh, a number of years ago um, where there was a, a member of the congregation whose father, uh, the, 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 he was the father, he developed a brain tumor and uh, was very seriously ill. And um, the, the tradition of that particular uh, faith community was to pray for people to get better. And so there was a lot of very devout and committed prayer um, ha happening for this man's um, recovery. And I remember, remember talking to um, his little boy, who was six at that time, um, and, uh, and he said to me, he said, he, said, he, said, he, said, he said to me, he said, I'm praying that Daddy will get better. He said, and, he said, I can tie my shoelaces. <laughs> because in his world, the most difficult thing imaginable was tying your shoelaces. And so if he could do that, then God quite clearly could um, heal his father. Uh, uh, and, uh, of course, um, in this particular instance, his father didn't um, uh, recover from the brain tumor, and part of the journey of faith for the family was making some sense of the, the, the pain of that. But he, in, in some ways, this, this boy this, would be in this stage one where you know, the, you know, God is just like this Superman or Santa Claus out there that's going to do something magically uh, for you. I won't go into details about some of the others, but there were different stages that people um, go through. Uh, and, and then into adulthood, there's a whole range that, that people experience. Now, so this the work has been very, very influential. But um, like all influential work, it has a, a, a period, it has a time, it leads to a level of crit critique. And um, uh, Coyle in 2011 has identified a number of, of uh, has offered a critique of faith development. He says Fowler's particular understanding of faith um, isn't necessarily what somebody else would understand as faith because it had become so broad. There's a world of difference, I think, between the world of faith and meaning-making. Uh, 
Fowler did that originally because he didn't want to be railroaded into having a very narrow particular understanding of faith which he experienced in his North American culture. The, the other critiques, problems are the theory structural logic of development. Uh, you know, the idea is that you know, your spirituality only gets better if you go up to the next stage. But in actual fact, we, we, we move in and out of these stages over, over and throughout our lives. And overemphasis upon cognition, uh, a lack of attention paid to emotional or psychodynamic dimensions on processes of transition and transformation. There was an inherent uh, gender bias, and then there was the whole notion of cultural specificity. So um, moving on um, from that, um, gender issues, particularly in relationship to faith development, have been addressed by a feminist theologian called Nicholas Lee uh, in her article in 2000 and her book in 2004 called Some Patterns and Processes of Women's Faith Development. And uh, the abstract of our article states this. Drawing on Fowler's faith development theory and feminist theological and psychological studies of women's faith, as well as feminist research principles, open-ended interviews were used to explore the faith lives of 30 Christian or post-Christian women. Three major generative themes are identified, which, it is suggested, represent key patterns in the women's faith. The three themes of um, paralysis, awakenings and relationality are described and discussed. The findings challenge founders claim to provide a normative account of faith development and real aspects reveal aspects of women's experience which requires fuller attention in future research. Now of particular importance to me is the whole notion of re relationality because it's at this point I want to intersect it with my own research. Is spirituality in counselling and psychotherapy given greater significance because these therapeutic traditions exist in a relational paradigm? It is very difficult to be a therapist um, and not be relational. Um, even um, cognitive-based processes which want to put the emphasis upon the process rather than the person, all the research indicates that the people who have got greater personal interrelational skills get better results. And by and large, um, if you want to explore something therapeutically, you want to do this in a relational way. And so I want to suggest that th there, might n there might be some very curious overlap between women's faith and relationality and counselling and psychotherapy, which may account for the fact that so many women, uh, the presence of so many women in counselling and psychotherapy, very simply because there's a better fit between who they are in the depths of their being and what they're doing and how they're engaging in the world. Slee identified um, in her book Women's Faith Development under the chapter on relationality, um, emphasised the following. Connected with the self, others, and the sacred. And she's talking about women's faith development here. This is, this, this is from her interviewees um, in this qualitative uh, research. A place of self-affirmation, empathy, holistic and embodied experience, a vehicle offering love and care, a place for the integration of experience, a container for the ordinary, and a place for exploration. 
And as I read down that list, um, I could quite easily be addressing a, a group of counselling trainees about what happens in a therapeutic engagement between two people in a room that generates levels of engagement and certainly contribute to something called the working alliance, which we do know is the best predictor of positive and po uh, positive outcome in a therapeutic context. You would, in fact, in a working alliance, have a number of these components be included in creating that bond. Now, that then does mean, um, and I've explored this a little uh, with you tonight, is um, if we hold to a premise that to be human has an essential spiritual dimension, broadly understood, and not necessarily a commitment to a religious or a faith tradition, then an expression of that spirituality for women will find a specific place in counselling and psychotherapy. And I say this may be one reason why there are so many more female counsellors or therapists than male counsellors or therapists. But just to uh, close in a minute, I did want to take a quick look at male spirituality to see how different that might be in relationship to what Nicholas Slee has identified as relationality in terms of women's faith development. And there tend to be two traditions um, dominant in male spirituality. There's an active tradition associated very much with engagement. And that's around, often around issues to do with power. There may be prayer or specific religious acts in which in a, a patriarchal, some patriarchal church context, you can only be male in order to do certain uh, specific religious acts. Um, uh, thankfully, I'm not part of one of those traditions. Um, the, but there's a bit, the, the tradition that I'm probably more linked with as, as, a, as a Baptist minister is one of proclamation and, and preaching. Um, you know, I may not be able to do the sacrament properly according to some religious groups, but I can do a good sermon, you know, um, and so um, I'll try and avoid. Um, if I get you, if I want to say I want you to come up out of your seats and come to the front um, at the end, I've clearly been watching too many American ev TV evangelists. But within that active tradition, the focus is on engagement, but it's engagement around very specific ways. And in Paradoxically, alongside that, there's a contemplative tradition which is associated with withdrawal, about coming apart from the world, in which, again, there's prayer or specific religious acts, in which the focus is on the imagination, is on the meditative, and in some contexts is on um, the mystical. So I think that's um, uh, an idea that I'm just beginning to explore and I'm not quite sure where um, it's going to take me, but I do want to s explore whether or not there is such a thing as male spirituality um, and how that gets represented in a, um, a counselling therapeutic context because then I could compare the other data with the data that I've um, already received because uh, um, a, a, qualitative, a quantitative piece of data with eight men in it is probably really not quite sufficient. One area that seems to have been promising has been the increasing interest in Celtic spirituality that's been a specific trend in the last 20 years. And uh, this may well prove, provide images, ideas, resources, and practices uh, because of its much more holistic nature and its connection with the land and returning to the land and being part of nature that in fact offers 
possibly a better bridge for both male and female spirituality that can be a new dynamic force in lots of contexts. And these are simply some books by uh, somebody who writes from that tradition who I have a, a lot of respect for and certainly enjoy, um, uh, enjoy his books uh, and his writing um, and where they take to me in terms of my own um, spirituality. So um, there's the, there are new forms of spirituality emerging, and in this one it may well be that there's more common ground for engaging both male and female spirituality, however broadly um, or narrowly we currently define those terms. And I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Um, well, it's very difficult to say because clearly um, there are so many more women in the profession, it's hard to get the, the, the raw data. Um, so um, the, the, the answer to that, which is sidestepping your question, is that there are some therapists who are successful and some who are not, and it doesn't really appear to make any difference what gender they are or what their therapeutic training has been. Uh, is. It's just that there are some people who are actually very good at being able to be therapists um, and there's all sorts of um, reasons behind that um, but your first part of your question do you mind just repeating well, that? No, it's, it's, I just wondered um, because you seem to be suggesting that because women's spirituality seems to be linked to different things that you would want to see in therapy that maybe that well, I think it, it does raise a whole much wider gender-based issues, which is um, I, I'm relating it very specifically to, to this idea that emerged in my own research. I think much more generally, you know, we've got to address the, the wider societal issues about do have we, have we more women therapists because it's seen as a caring role, and traditionally caring is something that, that women do and that men uh, that the men don't. So I think th 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 there are all, all the societal issues around gender do get played out in relationship to um, uh, counselling psychotherapy. I'm not suggesting necessarily that uh, women are, are better uh, than men or men are better than women in relationship to the outcomes of therapy. I think what I'm suggesting here is it might be that there's this is an unexplored area where it might be that there's a greater ma internal match between who a person is in their spiritual being and their practice as a, as a therapist uh, for women than maybe for men. Thanks. Um, uh, I think uh, uh, no, uh, I probably haven't, because of time, explored this as clearly as I should. Very clearly, there are uh, these are the m 
more major forms of the, in the books and in the writings you will find this emphasis. But very clearly, there have been very effective women who have involved in, in engagement. The Salvation Army would not have survived unless it had women uh, leaders. And they, 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 at one stage, were the largest social agency um, in, in Britain. So, and very clearly there have been, there's always been a history of women evangelists. Um, a colleague of mine um, who's at, at another university has written a sort of wonderful doctoral thesis on women in the women preachers in the Reformation. Um, it's just that they haven't been recorded in the histories. Um, so which again, of course, is because the histories by and large have been written by men. And similarly, there's, there's, there, there's, a huge, there's a whole range of women mystics who have been hugely influential, particularly in the medieval um, period and, and later on. So I'm not saying that these are ex this is exclusively male spirituality, but I think that a as a whole you will see a more, of more of these things other than some of the things that Nicholas Lee was identifying, which was focusing on, focusing on connection, um, empathy, and connectedness. Yeah. Might there be an angle as well that women are more likely to be spiritual because from the days when um, it, it was acceptable that not everybody went to church. There's been a, a, a very heavy uh, preponderance of women going to church um, and men choosing not to go. So is, is it likely that, that in any population a higher proportion of women are going to be spiritual in the first place? So if you're starting with a population of, of which is more female than, than male anyway, um, and then more of, more of your population... Um, the women are likely to be more spiritual than the men? Um, I think that while you would say that's generally true, there's always been some very specific uh, differences to that. So one of the um, impacts of uh, John Wesley and Methodism, which you mentioned earlier, um, was that, in fact, vast numbers of men were, in, in, to use Wesley's words, converted. And the appeal was very much more to men necessarily than women. And some of the whole... Um, structural changes that happened in uh, cities came about because m men began to get educated. So in some contexts, at some particular times, there has been um, a, a huge appeal to, uh, to men. But by and large, women um, seem to be either, they seem to stay around longer, they certainly live longer, and um, maybe are, are much more settled as part of communities in the way that you were describing in your communities in, in North Wales. Um, that, that they are that they are there and that they remain. You know, it's it's the men that became the drovers that went off to um, take the cattle um, elsewhere. So, um, it, th the other question is, and again, I haven't got an answer to this. It's just somewhat conjectural. Is that if if you have a, a, a dominant, if you're working with a particular audience, you are shaped by that audience or that congregation. So so you will tend to use thought forms that work with particular groups at particular times. And so clearly, if you've had a larger number of women in your uh, congregation over periods of time, there will inevitably be unconsciously you know, a shaping of moving towards um, uh, expressions that relate more readily to women than, than to men. So... Um, so it, it then becomes a self-defeating problem, is that, and, and this is the problem that some churches face today, which is to say, um, I, did, um, uh, um, I was asked to speak at a men's meeting, uh, a group of men in the church, and the question was, 
why men don't want to go to church. Um, and and uh, I was never asked back because I said the reason, the reason um, uh, men don't get invited to church, I don't want to go to church, because it's one of the few places where you can't say the word fuck. <laughs> so because if you, if you work in, in lots of male environments and you get used to um, varieties of language, um, it, it, there's a different kind of discourse uh, that happens. And I was using that sym symptomatic of there seems to be all sorts of prohibitions or things that cannot be said, but it's never spoken um, out loud. And, um, and I did say to the men, I said, and some of you here um, uh, will go home and your, your wife, partner, whatever may say to you, oh, what was it that Alistair said? Um, and I said, I, I you know, dare you to repeat um, you know, what I've said. And, um, uh, and as a consequence, I, I, I never got invited back. But that's, that's fine by me. Um, I'm going to ask all of the speakers to uh, come around and sit around at the table. They'd like for us to um, take questions as a, a kind of discussion. And uh, um, it's kind of supposed to be my role, and I suppose it might help to kick things off in a kind of integrative way if you guys move, because we have to pick up with this mic here, um, to try to make some comments um, that will weave these things together maybe a little bit. Um, one of the things that struck me about um, Naz's presentation was that most of the examples that she gave were from Islam. All right, as if religion uh, and religious rights were specifically Muslim. And that, of course, is, is to a large degree, I would guess that may have to do with your, your own interest and experience, I don't know, but it certainly has to do with the headlines, right? Um, however, many people are, are, are perhaps not aware that some of the rights issues that she's talking about in terms of religion also apply to Hinduism, also apply to Buddhism, some places also apply to Christianity, and certainly in the past have applied to Christianity. And so that began to make me sort of think, well, all right, one of the issues here is the degree to which uh, your rights as a certain faith adherent should um, override your rights as a, as a, a member of a gender, uh, as a gendered person, and yet to the degree that these negative gender um, issues transcend uh, religious forms, it's rather like what you were talking about uh, reporting from the rapporteur who says, well, the religion sets the rules and it ends up being enshrined in the, in the law. Uh, it's kind of the other way around. It's the gender system becoming enshrined in the religion. You, you know, I would, I would argue there that what we're seeing there is the need to, to reproduce the gender system and having it articulated through religion because these are things that te do tend to cross space and cross cultures um, and, and manifest with rather disturbing um, uh, consistency. Um, nevertheless, I would definitely not be the kind of person who would argue that religious faith was unimportant and the right to practice it was unimportant. I do kind of have an opinion that this is an important human thing. Um, and so it was interesting, that, but it's interesting to think in terms of freedom of choice with something like gender and with something like religion since both of them tend to be extremely constraining of choice kind of by their nature. Uh, the degree to which one can choose is I think debatable on both, both um, counts. Um, and then it's interesting then um, in, in Alistair's situation because he was talking about the, the kind of the childhood development model of faith and I've been reading recently 
and being a woman of a certain age would have a hard time just calling to mind where it was I read it, uh, but have been reading uh, recently in some uh, studies about the development of consciousness that the seeming um, rather basic building block in terms of um, inferring cause and effect in cognition and consciousness and how that tends then to sort of sort of lead even small children to postulate a supreme being, a, a kind of a primal cause, and that that may be a really very basic building block in much the way that um, gender is a basic building block. Now, the, the degree to which one wants to get away from that, I don't know, but it, 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 it's, it seems to be, at least many people, thinking it's a very basic piece of, of thinking, uh, and which again then leads a question about, you know, um, the degree to which it can be chosen. and the degree to which you could then be able to craft a gendered notion of that faith and that primal cause, right? If you hope you're following me here. Okay, so, so then, so, so Alistair has posited that there could be a gendered religion, and it so happens that I've been doing research for years. This is a little known fact about me. You can imagine how popular this is at the business school. Um, I've been doing research for years among goddess worshipers, okay, and, uh, um, in, well, New Age religions generally, but goddesses in particular uh, in both the UK and the, and, uh, the United States. And um, very much at the core of the New Age movement, which is, by the way, still a very rapidly growing movement in, in Western culture, is the notion of trying to create a fundamentally feminine religion to restore the sort of the sacred feminine to, to faith by reinventing it entirely. And it is really interesting because a lot of what I've seen is mirrored in your comments, uh, but one of the things that turns out to be really, really different often is the um, imagination of the material world, all right, and the relationship to the earth, the relationship to provisioning and, and um, things like that. And this Celtic thing that comes back because it seems to be also, it, it provides a better uh, a rootedness in that kind of material, uh, material faith, if you will. Uh, and so this is where I'm going to try to bring back into Francis here. <laughs> All right, because one of the things that happens with both gender and spiritual and religion is, is it very much structures how we live in the material world. And for example, the inheritance practices that, that uh, you were talking about with regard to these women, I, I was wondering because, of course, in Islam, one of the things that we still see is this structuring of what men do and what women do with regard to economic behavior and what they can own and very especially what they can inherit. And in many, many Muslim-majority countries, um, women are not able to inherit, right, either as daughters or as wives. Um, but in many Christian countries, that was once uh, the case as well. I know because I have a lot more experience with American history that women did not get rights of inheritance until the early 19th century, which would have been at the same time that Francis. Uh, and so that this would, be, this would be also something that was manifest in a, in a supposedly Christian country but nevertheless has that very distinctive gender thumbprint uh, in terms of the way that it that divides property. So it does seem to me that actually, was that good? I think I should get like a prize for that. Okay, um, so I think that actually there, there's a lot of overlap here and it's interesting to think about it. Oh, and I'm supposed to be in the middle, I guess, here, even though I'm not really the last person who should be talking. Okay, so, all right, so let's see if we can um, bat it around a bit. Religious values and many religious values and many religions have a lot of common 
uh, values in common. At the same time, there is a conflict, and it seems that women are disadvantaged when it comes to the conflict between human rights and religion. I, I'm wondering whether there is work being done with um, people who have the same faith in Western world, because there is, for example, a significant Muslim community in Western Europe. And I presume these people having chosen to, to live here, they automatically assigns a lot of the values which this society has. And I wonder whether they could be a sort of gate towards religious uh, leaders in Muslim countries, because I think if even international human rights committees intervene to discuss with religious leaders, I think it may be perhaps a, a deaf dialogue, or certainly NGOs, I don't think if I don't have a religious approach, I don't think I could be very successful with religious leaders. So I'm wondering whether this is being approached, whether there is actually any solution to, to very uh, cross uh, violations of human rights like, like uh, management and religion and this kind of things, which seem to be more, much more concerning than others. Thank you. Um, yeah, that you, you've raised a lot of issues. Um, did religions create human rights or were, were human rights originally religious? It's, it's contested and it depends on people's starting points, but you know, there's a lot of literature out there on uh, different religious tr traditions saying we are the fathers of human rights and really this all came from our religious tradition or our belief tradition. And it's hard to you know, agree or disagree with that. It depends on your position. I think we can't, if we overemphasize that human rights comes from one particular tradition, then there's a risk of alienation. So, you know, in a, in a more pragmatic, positivist sense, uh, there are many traces uh, and so pillars of human rights uh, through many civilizations, through, uh, through history. Um, and I think we should uh, emphasize the, uh, where religion and human rights overlap to gain support for human rights because in 1948 the international community set out these standards and states voluntarily signed up to them and it's seen to the mutual benefit of all that we live up to them. This is, uh, we, we've agreed to that regardless of whether we come from one religion or belief tradition or another. Um, but I, you know, what we've underemphasized today is women as agents of change themselves and uh, one thing that happened when I joined this department about six years ago is Anna Beer cornered me uh, <laughs> when I was fresh and had just arrived and said, will you teach on the Women's Studies Masters? And I thought, okay, well, what would I teach on that program? And I taught a course for a number of years on um, women and religion and human rights. And over those years, um, a lot of students from, you know, from a Jewish tradition, well, whether they're from that tradition or not, they, they, put forward and they studied different topics for essays and dissertations regarding women in Judaism, women in Mormonism, women in Islam, women from different traditions and how there are um, many communities and there are many NGOs and there's many movements within all of these traditions around the world wh where women themselves are reinterpreting traditions and texts and practices and, and challenging governments that have taken a particular interpretation of a particular religion and enshrined it as law. So I think we, should, we shouldn't just see women as, as, as victims or that the international human rights community needs to 
defend these minority women because obviously there are voices of women throughout these communities and cultures and traditions and they themselves are using means within their tradition to uh, question positions that have become um, very immutable over time. So I mean I would put the emphasis on uh, women as agents of change within communities as well. I would like to jump in a little bit on that, if I may. One, I think one of the problems, though, often with the argument that um, that the religions kind of are the ultimate fathers of human rights or something like this, and it would be fathers, um, <laughs> is um, is that um, many of them have also often then subsequently argued that women were not human, all right, or did not have souls even couldn't get to nirvana or whatever, right? I mean, deal, dealing with women as, as just not even being part of the class of humanity. And so, so I, I think that, that make, that's part of what makes it problematic, I think. Um, I do agree with what Naz is saying, is, is, that, is that the reinterpretation is where the hope lies going forward. A lot of the issues, it seems to me, are not so much in, in necessarily in original texts as they are in the exegesis that followed. And so having women being able to, to reinterpret and reinvent is, I think, really important. You probably have an opinion on this, Alistair. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's extraordinarily difficult when all the, all the strands you know, come together. What, what I do think is that, and I hinted at it, but actually lot, you know, the, the histories and the accounts that we have yeah. are often partial. Mm -hmm. And that it, if what's, what's I find really interesting are the stories that don't get told, mm -hmm. and often they do. It is either because, sometimes it's because of the gender of the person, but also sometimes it's because of the religion of the person. Mm -hmm. You know, because you know minority faith groups of whatever background always find it ex very difficult to have a voice, or, or it's as if uh, certainly Western European secular governments can can only s cope with big chunks of religion, and so everybody's who's Buddhist is like this, everybody who's Islamic is like that, mm -hmm. rather than trying to engage with a much more nuanced debate in which it is possible to have a spectrum that is both conservative, fundamental, um, liberal, creative, and trying to set up those dialogues. But of course that doesn't suit a soundbite society or a government that wants to bureaucratize and put everything into a box or a, or a label. But the kind of engagement and debates that people could have, I think, is much richer than is sometimes represented. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Isn't there a problem because, in some instances, religion has become so out of kilter with the norm of society mm. that it struggles to, to find its place? Well, I'm studying a period similar to Francis's in the 19th century, and I'm studying a Cornwall in the southwest of England. And by accident, I came across gender issues with the Bible Christians there, who were a form of Methodists. And when they formed in around about 1810, they were equally led by women and men, women preachers. But the women preachers were driven out during the 19th century. And by 1870, they'd virtually all gone mm. because the norm, it, they broke the norm of Victorian society and they had to be, they had to be got rid of. And, and, and over time they were. Women still formed a big part of that church, numerically, spiritually, but the power shifted in line with, I think, the way society's power shifted at the time. Women in the southwest also lost their 
the tenancy arrangements that gave them the farms. They lost them in the southwest as well. So they, they lost the farms, they lost their position in religion. And it's taken a long time to get that back. And in some cases, it's not back at all, or it was never there. So I think we've come a long, we have come a long way, but we certainly haven't come full circle. And it, to me, there's this big difference between power through religion and spirituality. And I think the two get mixed up. I just mm. wondered if you had any views on, on that as a panel. I mean, in international human rights terms, we talk about religion or belief. And, you know, from 1948, when these standards were enshrined, it's an inclusive. I mean, the, the reason for that is historical. It was uh, the Cold War period, and it was the emphasis of the communist bloc. But nevertheless, I think there is an inbuilt inclusivity within it. When you say that, you know, the, the main questions of our age have nothing to do with religion or belief, I mean, I would say, well, you know, globalization, how we uh, recast our economy, development, uh, and also in many parts of the world, the public discourse is very much uh, grounded in religion or belief. So, you know, the question of the identity cards in Egypt, why did human rights watch after, you know, a 40-year history, 50-year history, finally take up that challenge of uh, arguing on the grounds of religious laws? Because in that society, your talk has, uh, has little <laughs> value if you don't also, uh, you know, refer, make reference to religious norms as well. So, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, but, you know, the religious discourse and um, the main questions of our time, depending on which um, religion or belief we're talking about, I think they can be absolutely seamless as well. I think also, just listening to the way people are talking and, and defining things, I think it, it's almost always been that there's the, the private religion that takes place in people's heads and in their home and in their small community. Mm -hmm. And what we call, I would now call, sort of institutionalised religion. Mm. And you will actually hear in the media people talk about, oh well, Christians do this, or Muslim mm. women do this, and it, it's, it's a bit about your diversity really. But mm. in fact, spirituality, religion is so diverse, perhaps it's, it's hard for us to actually put it in a box. And what mm. we tend to do in modern society is want to put things in boxes because that makes it easier mm. to have solutions. When the human rights um, developments came, I suppose, in, in the 40s, there were people who were practicing a form of religion or spirituality within their home using a different language than the sort of language that was used to put human rights um, on the statute book. Mm. And I think, although we are moving slowly forward, mm. we still haven't grasped the difference between what's official and fits the boxes that we like mm. and what actually happens at home and, and in communities. Mm. And when you come to your um, questionnaire filling in, mm. sometimes that might be linked with other things that are happening at home rather than in public as well. So the reasons why more women responded than men might not be to do with anything to do with their sort of spirituality. It might be to do with situations mm. in their home and private situations. People perhaps had more time to do it mm. or people felt that it was more important. Mm. So it's I think what I'm trying to say is it's very difficult to broaden things out and put things into boxes. And we can, it's a sort of paradox. We're, we're trying to talk about something that for some people is very, very private. Yeah, I totally agree with you that it's that, uh, that assumption, those boxes, that sort of reductive behavior that is counterproductive. And much of what a gendered perspective um, is, is to reveal that you know women have been ignored, their histories have not been written. Not in a million years would I have imagined what France's 
painted here tonight, that you know, in that part of the country, in that era, there are so many women that are taking charge of the economy, if you like. Um, so, you know, it's important to reveal those stories and, and, and that reality, whilst not reducing uh, you know, the, the nuance that Alistair talks about. Um, I have a question more about the gender, because I think my expectations when I came to this event was that it would be more about gender identity. But it turned out to be kind of about gender binary, and specifically women, and the issues connected with that. So I was wondering, in light of recent theoretical and social developments, where intergender is becoming a thing being researched and uh, talked about, how the fluidity of gender fits in with the issues that we've Oh, well, I think I'd say in relationship to counselling psychotherapy, um, on the one hand, uh, in terms of people's theoretical thinking, because lots of the uh, original formulations from Freud and from Rogers and others were based very much on gendered uh, binary perspectives, uh, some of which have been challenged by, uh, clearly by feminists, and there's, there's a whole range of feminist psychotic thinkers that have, have, have evolved things quite powerfully. I think at, at a more grassroots level, I, th I think we're, we're still having enough trouble trying to get to grips with binary gender, and I think that your, your, the, the, the current issues about moving beyond that um, are, are pretty major. So, so I think that the, when, when you start talking with folk, there is a much more nuanced understanding. So at, at one level, the dis discourse is very nuanced, and there's some radical new thinking that's going on. But I think it takes a long time for that thinking then to, it, it meets a, a bulwark of ideas about what, what were taught in your initial counselling uh, you know, training, which would have been from a very different, um, very different perspective. So I think, I think we've got uh, quite some way to go. In the historical perspective, of course, you, you try to look at things from the, the point of view of that society at, at that point in time. And um, probably the Victorian period was, was the one that polarised the uh, conceptions of gender most. One of the things I find fascinating is look back earlier than that um, and, and women were more economically active. Uh, say that they were in any way equal, but uh, the, the, the idea of a woman's place being in the home, put on a pedestal, the angel of the hearth, um, weak, needing to be protected and so on, um, that that was very much a construct of that particular period. And one of the interesting questions for me was, um, how did that have less influence, if you like, in the society that I was looking at? So, as well as the material conditions that enabled women to become farmers, uh, that there must have been some way in which they didn't feel the same degree of moral pressure uh, to, to, to be in the home, um, not, uh, not engaging in the economic sphere. And um, I mean, po possibly this was a, a question of being less developed, less open to the ideas that were circulating through women's press in England and so on. And, uh, and ironically, perhaps, the greatest influence to, to women to, to not be economically active would probably have come through religion in the form of the, the Methodist ministers who were, the, who were the, the more literate part of the community who would have brought in those outside ideas. But uh, interesting that they don't seem to have tried to persuade women 
that they shouldn't be farmers, um, possibly because it would have gone so much against the economic necessity mm. of that particular community. Mm. Whereas, um, you know, what's interesting is that you seem to suggest that widows are given a unique opportunity as women in that era, whereas if we look globally even today, the rights of widows and the, the awful <laughs> situation of widows in many parts of the world is part of that is because widows lose everything um, and they don't get this unique opportunity for economic activity and a public role. Yeah. I, th I think also, at least for myself, I, I have less and less inclination to see that Victorian ideology as unique either to that time or that place. There are a lot of aspects about it that you would find right now in India, okay? There, the, the idea that, you, you know, the proper woman behaves in a certain way, has a certain behavior, that chasteness is important and things like this. That these are things you find in a lot of cultures a lot around the world. And at least in the United States, I can't, I can't speak because I'm not uh, as well versed in it, uh, the English history, but in, in the American history, you, you definitely would not be saying something like the women used to be equal in the church and somehow then in, in the Victorian period they became not equal anymore and now we're coming back or something. You, you would have to be able to see that from the very first colonies the women did not participate in any, in any meaningful way in, in, in either economic or, or religious life. And so, and so I, I, I think that there, there is, I feel, uh, some value actually to looking at those patterns that crop up across times and across cultures. And we've tended over the last 30 years to want to emphasize difference to a degree that I think in gender, I personally think in gender studies costs us something, costs us that ability. Yes, I, I, I would say that's, in fact, that is exactly what we're doing. But it's also, as Alistair was saying, it's our problem. Because I do have a great deal of sympathy with, I think, your, your last question. Um, you know, we are we behind the curve? I think it's really <coughs> time to ask that question when we're discussing gender. Behind the curve in what way? I'm sorry. I, I well, if you look at the pace of social change, um, the impact of new technology, the, um, the fire, if you like, sweeping through, um, activated by social media, of the exchange of ideas. It is a, it's a bonfire, you know, not of the vanities, but really it is a, a bonfire of the ideologies. Um, and if you also look at whether religion could be supplanted by human rights, or human rights, in fact, were there and religion sprang from it, going back to the idea of having an innate good, um, th th there are all these things now um, that, that could be runners over many seminars. Mm. Uh, what perhaps you know, I'm suggesting is it would be quite nice to see whether there could be something looking at it in a more evolutionary way to mm. get to the point where we're starting now, and what's beyond it? What do we see as a vision beyond this, mm -hmm. so that we can take in the incidental dimension more constructively? Mm -hmm. I think that also sounds really interesting. Anybody want to offer? I think that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've started off at least today saying, well, it's more complex, it can't be boxed, we can't make presumptions. But yes, I mean, on to all those topics as well. <laughs>
15 minutes is really tight. Yeah. <laughs> but it, but it, it, there, there just are lots of questions and trends to be, and, and, and mm -hmm. I personally am finding it really interesting right now because there's a lot of information about gender now that we didn't have 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it really, to me, really changes everything. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, unless anyone else has a burning question, I'm told that there are drinks in the common room and that you should be encouraged to go have one. And I certainly think that drinks are good to have at this time of day. So, um, and then if the, for those of you who are, and it's in the common room, and if I guess Liz, are you going to kind of lead people to? Yeah, I can take you down there, and then for those of us, the dinner at 6.30, so it's going to be a very quick drink, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, 